2: I'm Mai Nicholson, Internet Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for February 19, 2024. For today, I chose an episode from December 10, 2016, in which Jack Goldsmith interviewed Christopher Moran on his book, Company Confessions Secrets, Memoirs, and the CIA. Moran explored the intricate history of the CIA and its relationship with its former agents through interviews and first hand accounts of experiences in the organization. He detailed the efforts of former agents to go public about their experiences, the consequences of doing so, and the balance between secrecy for security and secrecy endangering democracy. I'm Quinta Juresic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 10th, 2016. At this week's Hoover Book Soiree, Jack Goldsmith sat down with Christopher Moran of the University of Warwick to talk about Moran's new book, Company Confessions, Secrets, Memoirs, and the CIA. The book is a meta-history of sorts of CIA memoirs, but it's also a history of the CIA itself and how the agency has grappled with the question of public relations and the contradictions of keeping secrets in a democratic society. And before we start, one administrative note this is our 200th episode. Thanks to everyone who has stuck with us so far and for all of you who are just tuning in now. We couldn't have done it without you. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 200. Christopher Moran on company confessions, secrets, memoirs, and the CIA.
3: Chris, thanks for coming. So why do officers of the Central Intelligence Agency write memoirs? And how is that, how, why do they do it? How has their inclination to do it changed over time?
1: Well, first of all, thank you ever so much for, for inviting me here across the pond. It's, 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 it's truly an honor to be here and, uh, you know, to have someone like Professor Goldsmith mark my homework uh, is, 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 is really a great privilege and honor. So um, uh, thank you very for much coming. for that. Absolutely. Um, so why do spies write books? I mean, there are some typologies here. Um, I would say the common denominator actually is money. Uh, follow the money. And my lord, there is money at stake here, actually. So intelligence officers of the highest rank, so typically those um, former, former directors, those who occupy the executive level, floor seven of, of CIA, but also high profile intelligence officers who, whose escapades and daring adventures have seeped out into the public domain. People like Tony Mendez of Argo fame, if you like. The money that these individuals can attract is, is truly substantial. So it was mentioned in the press, uh, uncorroborated, admittedly, but mentioned in the press that former CIA director Leon Panetta um, got a lofty three million dollars for his memoir "Worthy Fights." This is a considerable sum of money. Um, similarly, Valerie Plame, the author of "Fair Game," we might be talking anywhere between a million and two million dollars here. Tony Mendez, by the time that this book is 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 is, is, um, is taken up by a Hollywood um, company, we're talking some serious cash. And it's that's staggering, actually, when you think that these are individuals who, for their entire careers, are, are sort of anonymous, grey civil servants. In, in, you know, these aren't secretaries of state. These aren't presidents. But because of who they are and because of the public fascination with spying, typically intelligence officers can, can attract a lot of money. And it's always been that way. So I actually start off the book by looking at one of the sort of precursors of, of, of the CIA memoir genre which was a book in, in the early 1930s by um, the fabled uh, US cryptologist Herbert Yardley, The American Black Chamber. Um, which blew the beans on American code-breaking and cryptography from the First World War and into the 1920s, and he, he was, was the f- first Edward Stone. He was the first Edward Snowden. He was flat broke. Uh, he 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 was an alcoholic in the midst of the uh, of, of, of you know the Prohibition era. He had a wife and a mistress to support, and he needed money. Uh, he was also a, a profligate, uh, spendthrift. Uh, he was a gambler. He needed cash, and he got cash from writing this book. So money is a common denominator I would say in all cases. But then you're into particular typologies of spies who write books. Naturally you have the disgruntled, the disillusioned spy. Um, These are individuals who want to poke their former uh, employer in the eye. Doubtless we'll we'll get into a few of those cases later on. Um, Then you have increasingly a lot of intelligence officers who I would say they want to fight back they want to fight back. They're fed up with their beloved agency being attacked from left, right, and centre. They're fed up with um, filmmakers. They're fed up with popular historians, probably including myself, spouting misperceptions and, and inaccuracies about the intelligence business. So um, they want to make sure that the intelligence community gets its point of view um, across. But we should also not overlook the fact that, and this might sound counterintuitive at first, but the intelligence community itself at various stages um, has actually encouraged memoir production. So after Herbert Yardley's The American Black Chamber in the 1930s, the US spy memoir completely died. But then, between 1945... And 1947, there were a flurry of OSS memoirs, recollections, and reminiscences Explain what the OSS. Office is. of Strategic Services. So this was the sort of the wartime daring-do operation, the heroic individuals who parachuted into Nazi-occupied territory. And in some
3: sense, the precursor. In some, in some sense, the, the,
1: the precursor to the CIA. And the, 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 the wartime head of the OSS, William Donovan, he wanted to see um, the OSS transmogrify into a peacetime foreign intelligence agency this would ultimately become the CIA. But in order to do that, he needed to whip up support for spying in a US context. Remember, spying at the time was a sort of, it conjured up images of sort of continental despotism. It was something that the ghastly Brits like myself did. Um, So what Donovan did, he said to all of his his former agents, go out and write about your escapades. Show that you are good people. Show that you are honourable men. Show that you weren't incompetent. Show that you were successful. And so, One of the strange ironies is that the CIA that was created in 1947 was created in a blaze of publicity, unlike the creation of MI5 and MI6 in Britain, which happened in complete silence. And it was created in a blaze of publicity by reminiscences, by intelligence officers. It's extraordinary. So a whole range of of reasons. So
3: so there's a whole range of reasons about why people write. The agency's attitude, as you just alluded to, the agency's attitude towards the publication of these memoirs has changed over time. Could you give us a thumbnail sketch of those changes starting in 47?
1: Of course. So once the CIA was created in 47, then it was no longer a public rationale, so the CIA felt, to sell the intelligence mission to a skeptical American public. They'd already be convinced that An intelligence agency was needed to prevent a a, a nuclear Pearl Harbor, if you like. So the shutters came down.
3: And just explain, for a general audience, Mm. why it's important for the Central Intelligence Agency, as a presumptive matter, to be secret. Absolutely, that's obvious, but we need to. Absolutely.
1: So there are there are there are a number of reasons at stake here: sources and methods. This is absolutely fundamental. This is right at the heart of the intelligence business. You don't want to be tipping off your enemy or your potential adversaries as to the methods. That you, that you employ to, 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 to ascertain information. So there's always been that sources and methods argument about why intelligence business should remain secret, and it, was, it will always remain there. Secondly, when the CIA was established in 1947, it really relied on creating liaison relationships with other services. And this, this remained throughout the Cold War period. Even an agency as wealthy and as far-reaching and as omnipotent and omnipotent as the CIA it can't possibly know everything that's going on around the world at the same time. So it needs to create relationships with allied and friendly intelligence agencies. And you're not going to be able to create those relationships if you can't convince those people that you can keep secret.
3: So, those, so, so that's the presumptive reason why they basically shut down publicity starting in 47. Mm-hmm. And how did it go from there?
1: And then um, it changes slightly. So you get um, 1960, uh, the 1950s, are the era of what I would call secrecy, stonewalling, and spin. So CIA Director Alan Dulles shut down as much conversation about US intelligence as he possibly could but allowed occasionally, for a little bit of sunlight to come in, he he allowed himself to stick his head above the parapet to occasionally remind a sceptical American public of the dangers of domestic communism, of the dangers of international communism and the crucial role that the CIA was, was playing in this. Then you had the twin disasters of the U-2 shoot down in 1960 and then the Bay of Pigs fiasco in April 1961. These were both real bloody nose events for the CIA and a lot of people started asking questions about the agency that that, that really hadn't been around since 1946, 1947. Why do we have a foreign intelligence agency? Are they ethical? How do you square a secret intelligence agency in an open society? Should covert action meddling in the domestic affairs of foreign states be permissible? And in the midst of this this, this moment of of self and public introspection of the CIA, Dulles says we need a blast of publicity. We need to remind the American people that we are the good guys and we're doing a really good job out there for your benefit. So we get in the early 1960s a range of sort of small small scale public relations efforts um, led by... Alan Dulles himself, in retirement, he, he wrote a book called The Craft of Intelligence, which...
3: Uh, just explain, it. you mentioned, Dulles was a prominent CIA director in the
1: 50s. Yes, he, he was the sort of legendary, um, uh, 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 sort of smoking, professorial, avuncular-looking CIA director of the 1950s, also, of course, the master of, of dirty tricks, if you like. But he wanted to sort of pushed the message out there to the, to the American public that the CIA is successful, it's efficient, it's not incompetent, but he also was very, very keen to push the message that the intelligence business was not always about covert action. It wasn't about coup d'états, it wasn't about toppling governments, actually what it was about was sitting quietly, cogitating on the world's problems, collecting information, and disseminating that information back to the policymaker, He wanted to create the impression in the public mind that the CIA was not a bunch of Machiavellian rogue assassins roaming around the world, but was actually a university. Was doing a job very similar to what, what I would be doing uh, 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 at Warwick. But then after that blast of publicity with uh, CIA director Richard Helms, the shutters come down again. We're back in, a, in, a, in an era of sort of absolute secrecy, where the agency... Um, doesn't make a distinction between total secrecy on the one hand and total disclosure on the other. You know, you have one or the other. You don't have a middle ground. So PR efforts shut down, and memoirs clearly in this context are absolutely forbidden. This is also
3: the period in the 60s and early 70s when the CIA was doing some of its most controversial stuff. And then late 60s, early 70s, all these revelations about all of the things, all the illegal and maybe unethical and inappropriate things the CIA is doing. That comes to a head in the mid-70s and Mm. then what kind of memoirs do we get and what is the agency's attitude then?
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, just just to finish off where I was, one, one crucial point, no, not at all, one crucial point, and I think a lot of people forget this, there's the sources and methods argument, but another reason I think why the CIA has historically despised memoirs is it's ungentlemanly. It's not just unpatriotic, it's ungentlemanly. It's not the sort of thing that men of Harvard or Yale uh, of of, of clubland of of the East Coast Ivy League should be doing, but that's you know, the 50s and 60s. That's yeah. the that's the 50s and 60s. Um, but then the 70s, we get the renegades, we get the whistleblowers, we get the apostates coming out who really want to stick, uh, you know, poke 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 their poke their finger in the eye of the agency. So we get a lot of revelations about. Um, from, from whistleblowers and memoir writers, a lot of revelations about um, the CIA conducting domestic operations on the American people, on American citizens. Remember the CIA, its remit, its terms of references, Foreign Intelligence Agency, doing stuff overseas, not looking within the homeland at the American people. So a lot of revelations about spying on um, student groups. Um, civil rights activists, um, uh, anti-Vietnam war protesters, and it causes an absolute stink. Uh, The American attitude is sort of like, well, it's okay if you guys spy on those other nations over there. But But
3: this comes out out in the press, but it also starts to be talked about in memoirs.
1: It does. So you get uh, Victor Marchetti and Derek Marks. Marchetti was a CIA officer. Derek Marks was in the State Department. They publish uh, a memoir, The CIA and the Cult of Intelligence, an excoriating memoir of CIA activity they also they're also one of the first authors to really make the claim that the CIA has become obsessed by secrecy that at Langley you get secrecy for secrecy's sake you know the mindset is not just cla- you know when in doubt classify it's just classify 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 and then classify again and hope hopefully nothing will ever come out and then of course you get the notorious um, I hesitate to use the word whistleblower because whistleblower certainly in the U.S. has quite positive connotations, I think. You get the notorious renegade apostate, Philip Agee. let um, ponder
3: on, tell his story.
1: Philip Agee, so he was, he was an operations officer primarily in Latin America in the 1960s. Uh, he, saw, he saw some bad things, there's, there's absolutely no doubt about that. But why I feel he overstepped the mark is because he named names. So he published a work, uh, a, a series of books throughout his career, And quite often at the back of the book he would include a sort of alphabetized appendix at the back containing the names of CIA officers stationed abroad. And for me, I mean, full disclosure here, I I do hammer him in the book for this. You know, I don't sort of pull my punches for that. You know, I'm quite sympathetic to other whistleblowers and doubtless we'll we'll talk about them. But in Agee's case, I just think that 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 is a step too far. I think in doing so, I mean, he kept saying that his justification for blowing names was that um, if by revealing the names I, I can get these individuals to leave the countries in which they occupy. And he kept sort of saying they can stand up for themselves. These people have been trained by the agency. These are big boys. They can take care of themselves. But to my mind, it was a view that was just totally insensitive to the fact that these individuals have wives, girlfriends, families, who aren't trained in, in the dark arts. And one espionage. was
3: killed, allegedly, as a result of his
1: disclosure. Sure. So there was a CIA station chief in Athens called Richard Welsh, who on the 23rd of December uh, was slain outside of his home um, in Athens by, by, by Greek terrorists there. And a few months prior to that, his name had been printed in a magazine called Counterspy that AG was associated with. And in that very same edition of Counter Spy, AG was calling for the mass um, disclosure of names of CIA officers uh, standing abroad, uh, based abroad. And AG got absolutely pilloried for this, you know, and quite rightfully so. Quite rightfully so, in my opinion. That's that's a that's a that's quite a bold move. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: Hey, lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code
3: LAWFARE20. So that was, I think, the notori- most notorious example of mm-hmm. unauthorized memoirs. So in the mid-70s, there's a critical mass of memoirs coming out with various forms of resistance from the CIA. And then George Herbert Walker Bush establishes the Publication Review Board. Tell us why he did that, what it sure. what it is, and how it was originally conceived, where it was located, and why in the agency.
1: So the PRB, the Publications Review Board, this is essentially the, 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 the in-house um, folks at CIA who every officer who wants to write something has to submit their writings to for what they call pre-publication review, for vetting. And according to the agency, the, 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 the sole purpose of pre-publication review is to look at manuscripts and to identify classified information and remove that information. If that information betrays sources and methods, operations and other equities and names, the CIA has a right therefore to take and it out.
3: Classified information is just a label that the government gives to information that is deemed with various degrees of certainty to harm the national security Absolutely. of the United States. So there's a lot of discretion and classifying things, but that's what they look for in the Absolutely. PRB. Technically that's all they're supposed to look
1: for. Absolutely. So technically things like embarrassment, ineptitude, violations of law, they shouldn't be looking at that. It's purely as Jack was quite in rightly theory. saying. In theory it's meant to just be uh, related to classified information. So the PRB comes in, but it... it the CIA really needed a PRB by 1976, 1977, because there had been a massive proliferation of, of, of memoirs. I mean, in the 50s and 60s, there really weren't any. We're talking just a, just, just, just a handful of memoirs, and they were typically written by, um, um, by loyalists, if you like, people like Alan Dulles, who had an intuitive feel for what was classified and what, what wasn't classified anyway. You know, the agency could sort of trust them not to betray not to any secrets. But by the mid-1970s, when the PRB comes in, you know, we're talking about dozens of memoirs coming out a year, dozens of op-eds, journal articles, even movie scripts that CIA officers want to to write. So the CIA has to get a handle on this. Um, Very, very interestingly, um, the inaugural chairman of the CIA's Publication Review Board was a chap called Herbert Hetu, uh, who was also simultaneously the head of the CIA's Public Affairs Office. And this is very interesting because obviously the the sole purpose of CIA pre-publication review is meant to be to identify classified information. Well, if that really was the case, my position looking in as an outsider is, surely it would have been better to appoint someone maybe from the Director of Operations, now the National Clandestine Service, someone with an intuitive feel for what is classified and what is not, but actually it was the head of the the CIA's. It was the the CIA's chief PR guru who was appointed in this role. And And I think it's with an eye on reputation. It was
3: definitely with an eye on reputation. I want you to continue on the PRB story, Mm. us a little backfill on I was one of the things I learned in the book was how the CIA started in the 60s I believe maybe it was the early 70s they decided we need there was a debate mm. about whether we should care about public relations because the the original attitude was basically Dulles was an exception but basically in his memoir the original presumption was we don't say anything about anything we'll take our lumps and keep going But there was a debate that formed whether we should be proactive whether we should engage in public relations, whether we can use the memoir Spot as form of public relations. So talk about that and, and, and the office that that, what was his name, Hutt?
1: Hatu. Herbert yeah.
3: Hattu. And how he led that charge and then ended up doing the PRB.
1: So the CIA, I would argue, and there would be people who disagree with me on this, the CIA, I would argue, over time and not without resistance and not without some considerable backsliding has come to realize that a little bit of public relations is actually important and beneficial um, for several reasons. If the CIA is constantly getting a bloody eye in the public domain, in the press, in Hollywood, there is this danger that staff at CIA become demotivated, demoralized, and efficiency suffers as a result. So that's sort of reason number one. Reason number two is, I mean, what, what, what do agencies like the CIA fundamentally do overseas? They recruit assets. You know, they recruit individuals overseas who are happy to betray their country and work for the CIA. So if you're overseas and you want to recruit an asset and the asset says to you, but you guys are killers. You guys are stone cold killers that trample on civil liberties, that don't give a damn about privacy. Actually, suddenly then it becomes quite a hard sell. So you want to create an impression in these people's minds that you're good guys. Also, you need to keep an eye on your appropriations. Um, don't forget the CIA, you know, with federal agency here, folks on the folks on Capitol Hill are, are essentially giving, giving the CIA its cash. If folks on the Hill don't trust the intelligence product that the CIA is delivering, or if, like the rest of us, they're reading in the New York Times and the Washington Post that the CIA is, you know, a, a, a bumbling bunch of keystone cops, they might be reluctant to sign those checks. So the CIA essentially concludes that it's just too dangerous. It's too dangerous to leave its mission and its history to private hands. Too dangerous to leave its history, its mission, to journalists, to filmmakers, to memoir writers like AG, and it needs to fight back. And it does this um, with several things. So we, we start seeing more um, press releases coming out from the CIA uh, in the late 1970s. It even flirts with the idea of sort of Langley Open Days, uh, although they, they did a little bit of that, but Hetu actually... Uh, outlawed the really big open days because he he said quote that it would sort of be seen as huckstering uh, or it would be sort of seen as trying to sell the CIA like Disneyland it would be a little bit too flashy and a little bit too a little bit too garish, but lots of sort of um representatives of think tanks, congressmen, key journalists, key opinion formers in academia were all invited in, uh, into Langley for you know pre-packaged and pre-prepared briefings about the CIA's mission and such forth and it was felt that this just had a good multiplier effect in public discourse. It's tricky
3: and it's something the NSA and the intelligence community is dealing with again today um, and it's just very tricky. So how did the PRB work? I mean what would you started in 76. I was amazed by the numbers. The numbers of words or pages that they review just keeps growing and growing. I forget what the exact numbers were, but it's an overwhelming amount yes. of material because, so why has there been an increase in publication by mm. agents and former agents? And tell us about the challenges of the PRB and why it's such a hard role Ab- to fulfill.
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, one of the other key reasons for the PRB, so what, there was a key lawyer in the office of general counsel at CIA, who said one of the reasons we created the PRB was quote uh, please forgive me for being crude I I try not to bring this across the Atlantic Uh, but he said that the PRB is a quote a bureaucratic cover your ass because what happened Victor Marchetti in 1972 published a memoir the CIA and the Cult of Intelligence And the judge in his case looked at the redactions that the CIA had made and said it's arbitrary, it's capricious, you're just doing this on a whim, you're changing your mind all the time. So the PRB actually is a way for the CIA to say to the courts we have a process, we have a process here, we have rules and regulations. Um, But problems pursue. One of the key problems the PRB had then and it still has today is it's, it's, we were speaking about this earlier, it's under-resourced we're talking about a chairman plus maybe two or three support staff having to just vet tens of thousands of pages of material. I said to Jack earlier, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm quite critical of the PRB in some senses, but one thing I can't criticize them for is the massive workload that they're having to do. Um, they need Their institutional memory of what has been published has to be absolutely vast. So one of the big criticisms that a lot of authors have made of the PRB is that the PRB is saying you can't publish that, but that information is actually widely available in the public domain. But the problem is the PRB, we're talking just two or three two or three individuals here, they can't possibly fathom all of the material that seeped out into the public domain. I actually think agency. for what it's worth,
3: I've looked at this a lot, and I, I've been very critical of the PRB also, but I think the resource problem, mm. it, they take a lot of shortcuts, they over-excise, they take out too much stuff, but if you've got limited resources and you're not sure and you don't have time to... Figure out everything that's classified and everything that isn't, you're going to take shortcuts. So I think our central absolutely. problem here is even if the agency wanted to act in good faith on this, which I think sometimes it does, at least. Um, it's, it's like an it's just gotta,
1: grading student's papers. Exactly. I, I'm going to have to take on faith at a certain point that the, the, the student has correctly footnoted or referenced, right. you know, has got the right page number. I'm just not going to have the time to say, right. is right. that quote Except if you're in the CAA
3: and you're not I, sure you're going to take it out. You're absolutely. You're going to it out. So, um, We've only got time for a couple more questions. Tell, I want you to t- talk about um, just three or four more questions, actually. But please, talk please. about um, Frank Snap and Richard Helms, who I thought were the two of the most sure. interesting, and the audience might not know who they are, two of the most interesting yeah. cases in the book.
1: Absolutely. So, so Frank Snap um, was, and I, full disclosure, I've got a lot of sympathy for Snap. You know, I mentioned earlier that I don't have sympathy for Philip Agee, who, truthfully, is pretty close to a turncoat here. Snep, I have a great deal of sympathy for. So Snep was the CIA's premier analyst in situ in Saigon. Uh, He was the premier uh, uh, analyst of North Vietnamese strategy. And in that crucial period between the ceasefire in Vietnam and the collapse of Saigon, he saw that the writing was on the wall. So Nixon and Kissinger had obviously negotiated the ceasefire. A decent interval came into place. Snepp was there in Saigon, and he kept saying to people, the North are coming. You know, this ceasefire is not going to last people, and we need to to have some contingency plans here. He goes to the CIA station chief, Tom Polgar, and says, this is coming. These guys are coming. He goes to the US ambassador, Graham Martin, who doesn't want to bug out of Vietnam because he lost a son in Vietnam. He says, the North are coming, we have to get out of Saigon. He says to the State Department, we, we have to get out of here. And crucially for Snep, one of his big gripes was that obviously, in Saigon, the CIA had recruited a lot of indigenous local native assets, individuals who the CIA recruited to work for the United States. Um, he wanted to make sure that these individuals were looked after and given sanctuary back in the United States for the good work that they had done. Nobody listened to Snep whatsoever. We all now know the scenes of the, 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 the helicopters on, on, on the embassy roof. All of SNAP's um, forewarnings and forebodings came true. He went back to Langley. Uh, he demanded uh, to his bosses that there was an after action report. They ignored him. Um, He then wrote an after-action report uh, of his own accord. It was treated like a skunked carcass. Um, He he notified the President's Intelligence Advisory Board. They told him, frankly, to bugger off. So he had exhausted every single internal channel to blow the whistle from the inside. And he eventually thought, you know what, I've got to get the message out, so he published. And my view is, and I'm happy to be proved wrong on this, I, 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 I love plurality of opinion, the CIA got him because of course he violated his secrecy contract buried in his secrecy contract is the condition of pre-publication review I'm with snap on this I think it was a slightly vindictive persecution in his case I think it was an embarrassing story that the US government wanted to cover up and to kind of get their revenge get their own back they got him on the secrecy contract and basically, basically
3: this is a very famous case it went to the Supreme Court because what the government decided to do they didn't stop him from publishing but they basically took all of his royalties. Yeah. And the Supreme Court upheld this against the First Amendment challenge, and it was a very important decision going forward because it basically means that the government, if you sign these contracts, can keep you from collecting the money you're going to make Absolutely. from it. Absolutely. And so it had a big impact. I will say I understand I, I'm sympathetic to SNAP also, um, but if the government doesn't take some steps, I mean the, the ex-ante effects, the idea, if they don't, crack down on something like this, and I know they were motivated for all sorts of reasons, then I think they think every so often they have to crack down to keep the floodgates from opening. It's it's a message. It was a message. And this one, I think, did send a big message because basically, as you said at the beginning, a lot of the motivation is to collect royalties, and if the government, which establishes these pre-publication review processes, which don't always seem fair, Mm. which take place in secrecy, which seems arbitrary a lot of the times, but nonetheless, if you don't comply with it, the government can go into court and has a pretty good precedent to take your to take your um...
1: absolutely you know intelligence officers they are required to follow their co- their contract not their conscience ultimately yeah. um, and the the, the the CIA I think really showed the worst of itself with with the snap case I mean he, he was subject to physical surveillance by the agency, obviously they left him you know completely destitute took every last penny it was it was tough on him and the snap case and the creation of the PRB all coalesced at a very interesting time when CIA Director Stansfield Der- Turner had just done what, what is known as the Halloween Massacre at CIA. This was
3: Jimmy Carter's CIA director.
1: Jimmy Carter's CIA director C- uh, DCI Stansfield Turner. He basically just did some serious house cleaning at CIA and sacked about 800 officers from the clandestine service. And he was absolutely terrified that unless they went after SNEP... SNAP was just going to be like a pied piper for all of these individuals to go running, right. and, running off to publishing houses. So he had to send a message yeah. because you got a bunch of angry people who are angry at Stansfield-Turner yeah. who know actual secrets.
3: Tell us about uh, Richard Helms, which in many ways is in a way emblematic of the changes in the CIA, but also
1: the most amazing story in the book. So Richard Helms is probably the most secretive secret servant who has, who has ever served in the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, Thomas Powers, to this day, it's, I would say, one of my top three spy books of all time. Um, It's a book called The Man Who Kept the Secrets. So the epithet of Helms is The Man Who Kept the Secrets. This is someone who perjured himself to keep secrets. So in congressional hearings in the early 1970s... He was CIA director. CIA director, I should add. Um, In congressional hearings in the early 1970s, uh, congressman put it to him, have you been doing anything dodgy in, in Chile? And he flatly denied it. He said, absolutely not. Of course, subsequently, CIA misdeeds in Chile come to, come to light. And, and Helms is, is, is tried for perjury. But his view was always, I value my secrecy oath to the CIA above my constitutional requirement to tell the truth to, um, to Capitol Hill. Very interesting position. He was secret not only in his professional life, but also in, in his personal life. So I spoke to uh, Cynthia Helms, his, his, his wife, who's also published on this. And uh, uh, on, the, on the night before Cynthia Helms married Dick Helms, one of her friends said to her, why are you marrying Dick Helms? He doesn't say anything. <laughs> he doesn't say... You're not going to get a word, you're not going to get a bean out of this guy. <laughs> I mean, that, that really gives you a sense of how secretive this guy is. He truly believed that intelligence secrets had to be taken to the grave. It's kind of like the mafia code of a murder. Only the grave can can bring release. So, absolutely, you know, this guy is culturally and ideologically opposed to any type of openness and disclosure whatsoever. But then, stunningly, in 2003, 20 years years or so into his retirement, he publishes a memoir. Of all people, Dick Helms publishes a memoir. And what's telling here is that the ageing Helms like some of the officers I've referred to already, even Helms realised in his dotage that the agency had to fight back. It really did have to fight back. And his memoir came out just after he died. Obviously, 9-11 had occurred. And it it was a great account of how timely and accurate intelligence could have prevented something like Pearl Harbour might have done the same again for for 9-11. I was stunned with Helms. I mean... The Thomas Powers book that came out in 1979, The Man Who Kept the Secrets, it remains to this day the only biography of DCI Richard Helms. Helms never read it. Helms never, I mean, if someone wrote a book on me, be on Amazon within five minutes to get a copy. But Helms never read the only biography that that, that was written on him. I'm keen to know why. I've, spe- I've given some reasons as to why I think that's the case in the book, but I'm, I'm keen for some, to know some further information on that. He, he certainly spoke with Powers during the book's production, and I think that um, Helms felt that he thought he knew the book pretty well. But when he finally did read it in 99, 2000 he realised that the devil was in the detail. And one of the problems he had, was, had, 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 had with the book was that Powers had made him out to just be a bit of a sort of grey, faceless bureaucrat who didn't possess not just a winningly exotic personality, but zero personality whatsoever. Uh, I mean, Helms always wore exquisite suits, but you know, Powers gave the impression that he just sort of you know, shocked off the peg and such forth. Right. So he, he he just wanted to get the message out there. Yeah. You have gotta fight back.
3: So we need to wrap up, but let me ask you, so the question everyone in the audience is wondering is, what is an academic from across the pond, as you put it, doing, writing a book about the history of, a great book, I should say, about the history of CIA memoirs. It's a fascinating story how you you came to write this, and and also how you uncovered a lot of the information.
1: Well, contrary to Barack Obama's views, you know, maybe this is proof that Britain is not at the back of the queue. Maybe maybe we can still punch above our weight. Only on trade. (laughs) Only on trade. Um, Actually, I mean, the the genesis of this project is that um, the British government, through one of its major funding bodies, gave some money to myself and a number of other researchers at the University of Warwick to look at the question of how the American people have come to know and understand the work of the Central Intelligence Agency. The memoir element was one work package. We also had a fantastic doctoral researcher now at the University of Hull, Simon Wilmots, has done a great book on the CIA in Hollywood and the role that cinema has played in creating myths and mysteries about the agency. And then my mentor, Professor Richard Aldrich, also at Warwick, he's writing a book on the CIA and and, and the press. So that's that's the funding situation. But I think the best answer I can give to your question is really, in the UK we face similar issues here. These are analogous issues. It's not just the United States that has whistleblowers. We have them in the United Kingdom as well. And I think the UK government, our funders, almost a sort of... Solve their own own problems. We're keen to sort of see how the Americans have been dealing with it and learn It's
3: important to understand. Correct me if I'm wrong, but (laughs) my sense is that, despite what we think of as massively secretive intelligence agencies, they are through a variety of mechanisms: memoirs, leaks. Mm. We have a more permissive press rules. Our intelligence agencies are more open than your intelligence agencies, and therefore I think that, strangely enough, you have something to learn about the relationship, about how we manage
1: that. I, I think that's absolutely spot on. I mean, MI6 itself still doesn't declassify documents after 1912 1912 so you might find references to MI6 activities in say prime minister's office files from the 50s or treasury files but you know documents with the MI6 secret intelligence stamp on you won't find them What after happened the in 1912, 1912. <laughs>
0: anyway,
3: that's another book. That's another so book. Tell us, uh, it's the last thing. Tell us, it's, so did you find most of your
1: sources in the Central Intelligence Agency? Well, the, 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 great question. So the, the, I guess this is a sort of method question, and, and one of the sort of the methodological breakthroughs I think our project made here was that actually the best place to go and find st- information about the CIA is not NARA. It's not National Archives too which is where we have the Crest system, which is where the CIA declassifies a lot of its documents. Oddly enough, given the nature of intelligence liaison and given the nature of globalisation and the interconnectedness of intelligence activity, um, I found a lot of information about the CIA in UK archives. Isn't that strange? Sounds counterintuitive. Similarly, when I did research on the British intelligence agencies in my my doctorate, I found information about them in US Archives. Also, for this project, and I'm 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 really keen for my graduate students in particular to sort of follow up on some of the sort of the, the breadcrumbs, if you like, that I've left on from, from the archives. The the papers of literary agents, publishers. These are fantastic sources for, for people who want to want to understand intelligence activity. Don't forget, for every memoir that a publisher contracts, they're probably rejecting a hundred more. Yeah. And what happens to those proposals? They get put in the file. They get put in the file. Right. They get put in the file. You can
3: learn a lot about the CIA from reading the rejected book manuscripts. That's great. Thank you so much. It's a really great book. I highly recommend it. Thank, thank, you. thank you very much. You.
2: The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to the Hoover Institution for hosting the event and providing audio. Please spread the word and promote the Lawfare Podcast via your social networks on Twitter, Facebook, and email. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Thanks for listening.